This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Jane Gallup, Distinguished Professor of English at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, to talk about her 2019 book, Sexuality, Disability, and Aging, out with Duke University Press. Hello, Jane. Hi, Yana. (laughs) How are you? How's Milwaukee? Are you in Milwaukee? Yes, I am in Milwaukee. It's great. The weather has turned to summer and it's very nice. Our COVID numbers are the lowest they've been since the beginning of the pandemic. So uh, we're walking around without was- without masks. I've been going to restaurants and it, that feels like summer too. That's amazing. Milwaukee's such a great town. It, so it, it. it does not get the love it deserves. It is a great American city. Um, and summer in Wisconsin is a joy to behold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Winter we won't talk about, but that's right. another well, matter. You know, it's nice to live in a place where the best weather comes also when I'm not teaching. So, um. yeah, fair. Good, good. Like, that's very glass half full. All right. On. Um, all right. So let's just uh, let's talk about this. You are an extremely accomplished scholar and theorist with a intimidating CV. Um, is this what is this your 10th monograph? Maybe? It is. It is. I, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm afraid I count them because 10, 10 seemed like an impressive amount. So I thought, yeah, this is, this is my 10th academic book. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, none of this is cupcake stuff. No, it's not like, you know, we're, you're not writing chicken to, for the soul here. Um, you've talked about psychoanalysis, Lacan, and then you've kind of moved on and developed into um, a pretty unique voice of a, into feminist and queer theory. Um, so how did you come to write this book? Why does this book happen where it happens? Okay, that's a good good question. Um, so I had been working in queer theory in the 90s and early 2000s, early whatever it's called, the beginning of the century. <laughs> yeah. And um, there began to be a sort of appearance in queer theory of people who were connecting queer theory to disability studies. And um, and the, 
although I wouldn't have necessarily expected that connection because I hadn't really been reading much in disability studies in the 90s, the connection was great. You know, the kind of the resistance to, to, to bodily norms and to normalization, uh, which is, was shared by disability activism and queer theory, just was kind of a natural connection. But it also just made it much, much larger. And so I started reading this stuff. And um, I started reading it in the first decade of this century. At the same time, and actually coincidentally, in uh, around about 2001, I started having trouble. I started having a pain in my foot, which I went to a doctor with, and I thought it was some little thing, and he couldn't fix it. And then I ended up going to a lot of doctors. I had surgery. I read... Nobody could fix it. It's still not fixed. And it was that there was something really wrong with my feet. And I increasingly couldn't walk, <laughs> couldn't stand. I mean, my life gradually changed a whole lot. And I was, in 2001, I was like 49. So that's kind of where it, where it started. Um, so I'm reading uh, what I call crip theory, which is stuff at the sort of co- crossroads of queer theory and disability studies. And I'm also trying to adjust to a new disability in my life. And um, at first I didn't really make that connection. It was just two different things. One thing was going on in my work and the other was going on in my life. Uh, But as I started reading some of this really interesting script theory stuff, I began to imagine writing from the, and this I guess is ironic, the ironic standpoint of not being able to stand. And that's kind of where it began, right? I wanted to figure out, I wanted to do theory. I wanted to continue queer theory, but I wanted to move in this sort of crip theory direction that still had queer theory, but was, was engaging much more with, with disability as an issue. And I wanted to try to, to write like about based on, to theorize based on this, this experience I have, which was like a very, particularly in the beginning, very disturbing and painful experience. I, not not just literally painful, but sure, yeah, right, exactly. Right, and, the, and it was not the literal pain I was interested in writing about, but the fact that it it not only changed my life, but it was like it was really depressing, anxiety producing. It was all of those things. It, it my whole life changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, dealing with this kind of like it's one thing to think about things in this uh, in your sco- in a scholarly way, in a theoretical way, and then when it becomes embodied for you, it's a whole new matter, right? Right. Um, and it, like, well, this isn't just a theoretical exercise. This is me now being disabled. Right. right. And the thing is, is that I, I mean, my work has always, I think really from the beginning, been very much connected with embodiment. Right. And so, it, you know, uh, it's a part of why I was attracted to psychoanalysis is that psychoanalysis seemed to be a theory that was about the relation between the mind and the body. Uh it was certainly an aspect of feminism from the beginning, but I was particularly interested in questions of sexuality, questions of the body that had sort of, even when my work was very psychoanalytic and feminist, it was doing that. And then I moved into queer theory. So although this was in some way a new aspect of embodiment, it really continued what is for me a lifelong interest in, in, in thinking in relation to embodiment, in embodied thinking. Uh, so it, it, I mean, I think it makes sense. I, I mean, for me, I feel like this book actually draws together 
threads from my entire work going back really pretty early. Yeah, um, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that crib theory is a great place for that too, then, because like that is a wonderful place to talk about embodiment and, and there, uh, the, the queerness that is embodied, um, you know, I, I love, I love, I love disability studies right now. I'm on, I'm just discovering them and I'm on this as well. Um, it just makes clear to how wide the applications are for queer theory and like where you can go with this. And there are so many places, which include what you were doing here, obviously, um, talking about aging. Right. And um, how does that fit in? Do you, okay, how do you so see that, that? And that's really the next piece is if I'm talking about the, uh, the kind of origin of this book or where it came from. So, okay. So I'm in the first, I'm in the end of the first decade of this century and I'm thinking, I'm going to do crypt theory. I'm reading this stuff. I'm learning to live, you know, part of the time in a wheelchair. I'm, you know, all that's kind of going on and I really want to do this. And then in January, 2013. So we're now, now in the second decade of this century, right? Cause I, I mean, it was taking me a while. I was, I was just doing a lot of reading. I was reading up on it and I was involved in other projects. I was actually finished. I, my last book was published in 2011. So I, I first finished that book. In January 2013, I was at the, the Modern Language Association convention, which is this like huge yearly thing that has 10,000 people, uh, professors in language and literature, um, largely from North America, but some from around the world. And it's a place, you know, I've been going yearly uh, since 1974. It's kind of like my place. And I'm standing in the lobby. I mean, this is like, this is, this, you know, this is a world of 10,000 academics, right? I'm standing in the lobby and next to me is a small group of people having a conversation, one of whom I happen to know because she used to live in Milwaukee <laughs> and, uh, and her name is Devonie Lozer. And I kind of knew that Devonie Lozer worked in aging studies, but I actually knew her because she lived in Milwaukee, right? So I knew her in this other way. And she's standing talking to two other people. And I'm, I'm afraid I don't remember who those two other people are. They're talking about a session they're planning for the next MLA on aging and disability. And they're talking about, you know, the, how those two things do come together, don't come together. And a weird light bulb went on in my head as I'm eavesdropping. I wasn't even talking. <laughs> I mean, that's what's so like weird to me about this, but it was such an important moment for me. I just felt a light bulb went on and it was this question. So at the age of 49, I suddenly become disabled and I thought of it as becoming disabled. I had this new identity. I went from, you know, able-bodied to disabled, but I was 49. And why did I never think of that as aging? Why did aging as a category never, like, like I immediately thought, I'll start working in crip theory. I didn't think I should start doing aging studies. So um, I actually, uh, then from then on, I started doing reading, reading in critical aging studies. I got pretty excited. I also uh, volunteered <laughs> to, to the person standing next to me to speak in this <laughs> they were organizing on the relation between disability and aging, because I wanted to start thinking about it. And that's really, that's where the book in its present form really took shape, which is that I wanted to think about uh, why we think of those two things so separately, even though a huge category of this, uh, the disabled are what I call late onset disabled, people who get disabled in middle age or later, 
right? Mm-hmm. And a huge category of the aged population are people who are disabled because the chances of becoming disabled just increases the longer you live. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was not, it's not an atypical aging story to discover at some point as you're nearing 50, that your body can't do what it used to do before. And to, you know, and again, to be horrified by that, to be horrified that you have gone from being able-bodied to disabled in this, in this weird cliff, as opposed to something a little bit more gradual uh, or con- a kind of continuum. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of started off by thinking, why did I only think of disability? Why didn't I think about aging? And then I discovered that whereas by 2013, disability studies and crypt theory had become really big and important, just generally as theory and particularly in queer theory, nobody was talking about aging. The only time they ever talked about age is when they were talking about adolescence, which is an age category, Mm -hmm. but it's not about aging. Right. Right. And that remains still true to this day. There are very few queer theorists writing about aging and there are not many people doing crypt theory writing about aging. And so I decided that I really wanted to think about that, 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 that it wasn't enough for me to say, okay, I'm disabled, crypt theory, etc., as if I had this new identity, as if I transitioned somehow from able-bodied to disabled without thinking about the sort of the changes over time, what that all means, and how that is. Again, it is a typical aspect of aging. Not everybody's feet go, but people's hearing goes, mm-hmm. people's, you know, people's back goes and suddenly they can't. I mean, the, the number of people who become late onset disabled is large enough so that it is and not an atypical side of aging. And yet we separate those two categories as we think about them. And, and disability studies has... central to its focus has been people who are disabled either from birth or from early, from childhood, adolescence, youth. It's much rarer for disability studies to focus on this this very large category of people who become disabled as they age. Yeah. And you make, I mean, you note that like most of us will, if we live long enough, become in some way disabled, but it's interesting. And I was thinking about like, why is that? Why do we think of why, why am I thinking about aging um, as just this natural process wherein I lose my faculties um, as opposed to some unnatural process? Is that it? Like when there's an accident or there was some sort of mistake or, you know, um, when, and I, I, I'm, that's something I'm going to have to think about for a while. And you've, you've been thinking about for a while, I'm sure. Is yeah, that- well, I have, I have a couple different things to say about, about that. Um, first of all, a lot of these kind of growing disabilities, they're not accidents. A lot of them happen because you've kind of worn out your body. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. They're, they're the effect of time. I mean, if you've ever mm-hmm. had like an old car, it doesn't work the same. And this is sort of how I feel about uh, my chassis. I mean, I like, I, you know, recently I had a new pain in my uh, back that I that was new. And I went to my chiropractor and she said, yeah, well, you know, you got arthritis and it gets worse the older that you get, <laughs> which, you know, and, and I know that. Yeah, right? I know. Arthrit- arthritis is, is something that, you know, there are some young people who have arthritis, but typically arthritis is something that happens as you age and it causes various pains and difficulties and all of that. And uh, although the problem in my feet is not arthritis, I have 
also plenty of arthritis. Um, I'm 69 years old and I think I, it's not atypical for someone 69 for their joints to just have, you know, been used so long that they've, they've built up a lot of unpleasant Mm -hmm. (laughs) side effects of that use. So, um, and I don't think, so I'm not so horrified by it. Part of it is, you know, working on this book and thinking about this has made it, made me feel, well, two things. I always think aging is better than the alternative, which is dying. Absolutely. I say so that myself. It's a good thing. Yeah. Right? People who say, I don't want to age. I always say, well, what do you want to do then? <laughs> I mean, yep. And so I don't think, you know, I, I get a lot of pleasure out of my life experience and the sense of kind of confidence I feel from having done everything I've done in my life and, and that comfort. I, um, but the other thing is, is that I came to think as I was working on this book project is that the fear of aging is actually the fear of disability. So this is why crypt theory is such an important part of that, which is the, the kind of horror we have about the disabled, which often takes the form of pity and also gratitude that we are not disabled. That includes in it a terror, a terror at the idea that we will become disabled because we think of the disabled as less than human, so that it's just like this horrible loss. So, just a second, let me get rid of this noise. So, um, people, I think that people's fear of aging is actually a fear of disability and not a fear of aging. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Because it's not a fear of death, because that's the opposite of aging. And it. So, I mean, what aging is an abstract thing, and so. So I started thinking about that. And in some way, the book is about that. It's about the horror of disability that inhabits our relation to aging. And so therefore, if we lived in a world that actually wasn't, didn't think of disabled people as less than human, we would be less afraid of aging, which all of us are doing if we're not dying. So, so I, I feel like they're, they're tied together in that really, really interesting way. But that it's also why... It's why you really need a, a kind of radical crypt theory, this kind of like pro-disability activism to, to change how we think about aging. Because although, because although not everyone will become disabled, first of all, a whole lot of people will before they die. And I don't mean right before, but sometime between now and when they die. But also everyone is aging and just about everybody is afraid of aging because they're afraid of becoming disabled. And therefore, altering how everybody feels about disability would change how we all feel about aging. And also, you know, and so, so that, that's how they come to ultimately, I came to understand them coming together and why that was so important. Mm-hmm. Ooh, lots to think about just there. Um, okay, so your first body chapter, High Heels and Wheelchairs, starts with the story of good feet going bad. And told in the first person, the narrator, specifically you, ends up in a wheelchair. And there's this abject loss, the ability to walk and the ability to wear really sexy shoes. And it all takes place in New York. And before I go any further in the story or anything else, I want you to talk about this, like methodologically and just why start here? Okay. So, and and from the beginning, (laughs) I... I knew I wanted to tell that story. I didn't even know what else I was going to do with this book. The first piece of this book I wrote was that narrative, which is, I don't know, it's like 10 pages. And it's a narrative 
that um, actually starts from the first time I ever went to New York and got blisters all over my feet to being in New York in a wheelchair because I can no longer walk. And it takes me like from when I'm 16 to when I'm, I don't know, late 50s, early 60s, whenever that was. And I don't know why, but I kept feeling like I wanted to figure that story out. I wanted to tell that story. Um, it, it ends with this very erotic sexual fantasy I have about being in a wheelchair. And, and I was surprised to have that fantasy. I, you know, it, like most sexual fantasies, I don't think you decide to have them. They pop into your head. When that fantasy first popped into my head, I, I was just amazed. Like, where did that come from? The idea of being able to find being in a wheelchair sexy was such a surprise to me. And also, it was so exciting, not just sexually, but theoretically. As somebody who had been reading a lot of crypt theory and who was who loved the idea of being able to have, you know, to get beyond pity, to get beyond, you know, we're just like other people and imagine a truly affirmative, positive view of disability. This was like like a tailor-made fantasy, but my conscious mind and my theoretical mind had not created it. It comes from wherever sexual fantasies come from. And I was so excited. I th it was it was having that fantasy that I thought I want to write the story of that fantasy. I want to tell people about that fantasy, but I have to have the whole lead up in which I'm basically just depressed at finding myself in a wheelchair. Um, so that so that the full weight of how surprising that switch from it is so depressing and awful and and desexing to be disabled to my God, it could be really sexy to be disabled. I just experienced that. That's what created the story and ultimately created the book for me. Why sidewalks? What's the importance of the sidewalk here? Well, there are places people walk. <laughs> and they're, first of all, <laughs> yes. so, uh, I mean, there are also places people can have wheelchairs. But, um, and so they're, but it's, it's something about the city. And being among a lot of people and the, I mean, I guess for me, the sexiness of sharing space with strangers, who you look at, who look at you, and that level of, of sexiness or sexuality, which is not about the relation you have to someone you know, which is certainly an important aspect of sexuality, but the, the, the sense of possibility you have passing strangers on the sidewalk. And it, it's the sidewalk, not the street, because, you know, those of us who live in cities with a lot of cars, you don't even really see people when you pass them. It's not you are not bodily aware of them. But walking down sidewalks in cities where there are a lot of people walking around, there is this world of other bodies that you look at. And you interact with them in this interesting way, too, because some people really want to be seen. So there's the catwalk experience, as you discuss, and there's, the, I mean, there's this parade of a variety of human experiences and the people who don't want to be seen. And those are maybe even more interesting. So you, you have this ongoing um, space. And this is, um, you know, and you are also on display right? when you're there. There's something just kind of inherently at least with the potential for eroticism when there's that many people around and that kind of variety and this yeah. kind of impersonal closeness, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Closeness. I think that's good. Right. And so, so you're, you have bodily proximity, which, and, but you don't to with strangers. 
Yeah. And you don't have any intimacy, emotional intimacy, but there is this physical intimacy when you bump up against people, you, you know, yeah. you, you have this, like, sometimes, you know, you do that thing where you do the little dance with someone where you're trying to get out of their way and it's funny and you have these moments. Right. Uh, and, you know, I've always looked at people on the sidewalk a lot. I look at their clothes. Do I like that? Do I not like that? I look at their bodies. Does that, you know, do they look good? Do they look bad? Do they look interesting, unusual? It's, it, and it's not just their bodies as a sort of static form. It's how they move, mm-hmm. right? Because that's part of it. Everybody, everybody's not just there in their body. They're moving. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's very active. Um, The other thing, when I'm on the sidewalk, I look at shoes. And you, and I think you do, you do too. That's just quoting me. You do. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's a thing we, we have in common. And so shoes actually are a really important part of the story as well. And I would like to hear kind of where you sit. Like, I want to hear about this. What's with okay. you in shoes? It's true. Shoes are, I mean, the, 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 the chapter, as you said, is called High Heels and Wheelchairs. And a simple version of the uh, arc of my story is going from high, from wearing high heels to sitting in wheelchairs. Also high heels and wheelchairs, the two terms kind of go together and the, the heel and the wheel and all of that. Right. So, um, and it's true that I just like, from the time that I was pretty young, I just like loved sexy shoes. I was like, that was the object that I most wanted when I shopped. That was like the, the accessory, and I just loved looking at shoes and windows. Um, and they were, and, you know, and I discovered, and I write about it a little bit in the book, as I did research, that is not unusual. There are a lot of women who have that relation to shoes. Um, you too, <laughs> for example. And so I had, I had really been into shoes. I had had a lot of shoes. I had, and I was really into sexy shoes and, you know, high heeled sandals and wild colors and with straps around the ankle and, you know, shoes, um, boots for winter, high heeled sandals for summer, high heeled, like fancy colored suede boots for winter. You know, it was just, it was, it was really important to me. It was a source of great pleasure. And that was like, it was my big extravagance. Like I remember, Back in 1980, in the 1980s, I bought a pair of shoes that were $200, which was really expensive. That's expensive for the eight. I mean, it's not yeah. nothing now. But- yeah, right. But it was like a real extravagance. And, I, you know, and I remember them. They were they were high heel sandals and they were this 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 great teal color color. And they had just like a great heel. I mean, I could still see them. And this is I haven't seen these shoes for 40 <laughs> years. Um, so were you in and- graduate school? No, in the 1980s, I wasn't in graduate school. Okay. I couldn't afford $200 school, shoes. I like, okay. No, I, was, I got tenured in 1981. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah. I was, by the 80s, I was able to afford expensive shoes. Wow. I mean, particularly because I didn't, you know, I, I didn't spend money on anything else. I spent about shoes. Um, and so 
My feet, of course, didn't get bad just that one moment in 2001. It was only in 2001 that I started to really have pain. Mm -hmm. But something had been going on with my feet actually for decades, not surprisingly. And it was exacerbated by my two pregnancies. Mm -hmm. So my, a lot of people's feet change after they have a baby or after they're pregnant. I don't know. Having the baby probably doesn't matter. But being pregnant for nine months does. Uh, there, the, it's a lot of extra weight. So your bones kind of change their position. And so, uh, I wore a medium width shoe before my first pregnancy. I wore that, which is a B width in the United States. <laughs> I don't know how widths work. Um, and I know people have, uh, it's easier to get wider shoes in the Netherlands. So unfortunately I don't live there, but, <laughs> um, I wore, I, my width number went up after my first pregnancy and then it went up again after my second pregnancy. So something was happening. I mean, my, the bones of my who were splaying basically. Yikes. And I, but I didn't think of it as a foot problem because I didn't have pain. I thought of it as a shoe problem. I just thought of it as a shoe problem. I couldn't wear my old shoes. I was, it was, as I went out of medium with shoes, it was very hard to find sexy shoes. I spent a lot of time looking for them. I went to New York because that seemed the place most likely to have them. This was of course before the internet. Oh, so yeah, you couldn't shop for shoes on the internet. You actually had to go somewhere to shop for shoes. Right. Because the thing about, and I, even today I wouldn't shop for shoes on the internet because you have to try shoes on. <laughs> right. Yeah, That's yes, right. you do. <laughs> so um, we're probably taking too much long as shoes. <laughs> it's, <laughs> probably, it's whatever. It's our time. We, <laughs> we can do what we want. Yeah. So anyway, um, by the 90s, by the 1990s, I was most of the time actually wearing now cute shoes rather than sexy shoes. I was wearing, you know, Converse high tops. I had, I had, I owned a pair, I owned like 10 pairs in different colors. That was kind of what I moved to. So it was different. It was not, not the same as high heels, but it was still kind of fun. And it was still like collecting shoes uh, until I... That, and that's what I was wearing when, when I started to have this pain. I was literally wearing a pair of forest green Converse high tops when I started having this pain uh, on, on the sidewalks of New York in 2001. Um, but the other thing about shoes that's very, that's very important for my story is that for the first, I don't know, year or so after I started having this pain and couldn't get rid of it and went to several doctors... I wasn't thinking about my feet. I was thinking about my shoes. What was I going to wear? I was so sad. I was so, the loss of all these, the loss of the ability to wear cute shoes or sexy shoes or fun shoes was overwhelming and depressing. I, and that's all I thought about. I didn't think about the fact of what, well, because my doctor said to me, you better get into some like, uh, serious, uh, support shoes. Or in 10 years, you're not going to be able to stand at all. And I didn't even pay attention to that. The 10 years in Nekibus that didn't bother me, it was the shoes. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah. And that, and so the, and just, just to try to end this part quickly, so that the, the arc of the story goes from the loss of those shoes as a loss of sexiness, as a, a kind of castration. And my background in psychoanalysis makes, makes me go to that category of way of, you know, how do you describe the like the loss of your sexuality and then this the, the so the story ending with with this kind of incredible sexy scene in a wheelchair is the surprise that like you could lose your sexiness in one place and find it again somewhere 
quite different. Yeah. So right? like yeah. needle on the record with the castration story. Because it's 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 uh I didn't see it coming. I did not see that ending coming when I was reading it. Um, it's it's but a little. I liked it. It was it was the surprise. It was well, it surprised me, and so I wanted to surprise my reader because it was that surprise that got me to think, and got me to think about how invested we are in the story of when you lose your sexuality, you lose it forever. So the idea that it could show up somewhere else, right? That is, this is such a relief. It's so. <laughs> And it's so theoretically exciting. <laughs> it is absolutely theoretically exciting that you just see this, the crashing end of this castration narrative as you regain, like, and what I think you call the phallic surprise, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> I do call that, yeah. <laughs> it's a fabulous term, the phallic Thank surprise. You. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. What do you actually tell our listeners? What, what do you, what, what is a phallic surprise? Well, I, I guess a phallic surprise has to do with the fact that our, our narratives about aging intersect with the notion of castration. I mean, we basically think of aging as castration. We think of aged people as castration. And so they go, so people, as they age, go from being sexual people, attractive, with libido, to asexual people, not sexy, not sexual, you know, just like sexual losers, basically, <laughs> not, neither as subjects or as objects. I mean, it's, it's kind of like there. So, and, and that's all, so that's, that's our narrative of aging, but it's also our narrative of becoming disabled, mm-hmm. which, which is, I mean, castration is actually an image of, of, being disabled because it's some part of the body being ruined. Mm-hmm. Right. So it is, it is, it is, it is actually an example of, of this kind of disability, although we don't use that. And because, because all of our ideas about castration are so negative because it's used so horribly in the most sexist ways, the last thing you would want to apply to thinking about disability is castration, which is why it was kind of hard for me to get there. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's an image in which something happens to you very suddenly, very violently, and you go from being a healthy, vital, and sexual person to a disabled, asexual, pathetic, pitiful person, which is pitiful is kind of the opposite of attractive. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. So, So that's kind of... That's how castration functions. So as I tell the narrative I tell of coming down off of my high-heeled shoes and ending up in a wheelchair, it looks like a classic, you know, kind of slide to castration. And then the ending, which really happened to me, of feeling so sexy in a wheelchair is what I call a phallic surprise. And the reason it's a surprise is, is that if you believe the story, the castration story, as our culture tells it, which is whether it's a story of disability or aging, you know, Mm -hmm. or whatever, uh, no one ever goes from castrated to phallic. You only go from phallic to castrated. Right. Mm -hmm. But in this story, I actually went from phallic to castrated to phallic and that that phallus that comes after castration is a surprise because we're not prepared for it. And I mean, this is the phallic binary, right? Right. Men have them, women don't. Young people have them, old people don't. Um, 
so there's the like the phallic binary is not experienced by by first of all not by one person they don't get to have both and certainly not in that order you don't you don't normally get that so this is a disruption of this tale and a way to rethink and reconceptualize aging disability sexuality it's, it's right. really important it's really it's it's really good it's smart and it's cool and it's fun to think about and it's encouraging um because the other point here is that disability, uh, your inability, your the castration. Um, we'll, we'll go ahead and just like it will lead, We will adopt psychoanalytical language, right? Um, yes, let's go. Like the thing about castration is that it messes as well with your gender identity. You're all these. It's not just about your sexual identity or yourself. Suddenly, is a castrated man a man anymore? Right. Right. So this is a very personal and entire identity issue. Right. Yes. And it's really about, I mean, it's, 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 it's disability and it's also just about the loss of self. Right. And that, so I, and part of talking about that is, is that I felt like I couldn't, once I changed the kind of shoes I wore, I couldn't dress the way I used to dress. Mm-hmm. Right. I couldn't wear skirts and dresses cause they looked horrible with the kind of shoes I wore. And, um, and so it was changing everything. You know, it was like, like, you know, so my, um, my style, my sort of femme style, which had been my lifelong style that made me feel sexy, that was, you know, attractive was like, it was affected by having bad feet, even though I didn't think of feet as part of, you know, that. But I I think I want to say a couple other things. This may not be where you were headed, but you, you're talking reminded me of it. One is that, yes, the, the story of castration that we all know and hate is one in which women are castrated and men are not or are phallic. But in fact, there's, there are a couple, in, and this is, I had to go back and rethink the psychoanalytic theory of castration in order to be able to use it. And there are two, two major moves that I made in this book. One is to talk about women also feeling castrated when they feel a threat to their gender and or sexuality. And that we don't talk about that as castration, but that but if you define castration as the loss of sexuality, then it is something, you know, that can happen to women as well as men. That's the first thing. Um, the second thing is that I realized that in fact, even in the most standard orthodox Freudianism. Castration is actually something that happens to the same person and not just to do different categories of people. And the center of that for me was something I knew very well from the work I, the feminist work I did on psychoanalysis, uh, looking at what Freud wrote about uh, women and girls, which is that Freud and people made fun of him endlessly in the 1980s and 1990s, people meaning feminists, kept saying that the little girl is a little man and describing women as castrated. Now, if you describe someone as castrated, it doesn't just mean they don't have, they don't have a penis or they're sexual. It means they once castration is the loss of something you have. They're broken. Right. And the reason he described women as castrated as awful as it is, is because he saw little girls as phallic. And then he saw them as becoming castrated as they became women. And as awful as that is, as an image of femininity, it means that for that if little girls can be phallic, it means you don't have to have a penis to be phallic. 
first of all. You don't have to be a man to be phallic. He didn't know how to say it. So sometimes he said the little girl's a man because for him a man was phallic. But he was trying to figure out and that a person can go from phallic to castrated, which is why, of course, men walk around with castration anxiety because they also know people can go from phallic to castrated. So that's so castration is actually um, phallic and castrated happen in the same people in psychoanalysis. The thing that doesn't happen in psychoanalysis, at least in orthodox psychoanalysis, is that you can go from go in the other direction. You can go from castrated to phallic. And yet Freud wrote all the time about his how he was so frustrated because his female patients, a number of them, would not give up the idea that, that psychoanalysis would give them a phallus. They would not give up the idea that, that there might be a phallus in their future and not just in their past. And I, you know, I, I never said this in the book because I couldn't figure out how to say it, but I feel like that was a figure that for me was really important as I wrote this book, which is that, you know, why don't we endorse the wish of those female patients who would not accept Freud saying you should just accept your castration, because but saying, no, no, I know I'm castrated now, but I believe in the future I could be phallic. And it's a belief in the possibility that the future is not always worse than the past, worse mm -hmm. than the present. You know, I mean, Freud was a pessimistic guy, so uh, it's a pessimistic science. Um, so I think that the phallic surprise for me, or the idea that one could go not just from phallic to castrated, because in Freud, everybody goes from phallic to castrated, whether you're a little girl or an ancient, an anxious man, or, you know, uh, a man going into like uh, the end of his life, becoming an old man. Um, there's all, it's very easy to go one way, but it, 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 for me, again, this fantasy I had was was this kind of revelation of what if we thought about the possibility that you could go both ways. You you're introducing what you call a strange temporality, right? Right. And you bring it back. So the next, uh, the second section of the book, the second half, opens with the story of kind of you discussing what happens when your husband develops cancer and has to have his prostate removed. Good sport. You said that in the book. Absolutely. <laughs> Good sport. <laughs> that is a that is that is i want your marriage like that right there is a sign that you have a wonderful marriage um well done you Good the sign that he allowed me to write about it is what you're saying yeah yes. and then he was like yes for your for your work let's discuss this <laughs> all right and this it and the the reading this in the book it's very um there's there's a wistfulness i don't know you know it's very um it's it's not a it's not a tragic story um it's this kind of it's a, it's just this very intricate story of i mean perhaps a castration story as well right um, almost a literal castration story but it does there's not it's not disastrous either there's not a disastrous end here Right, right. No, it, I mean, it definitely is a version of a castration story. And, and, and certainly, I mean, in the hands of someone like Philip Roth can get told just like a castration story because he's that kind of guy. Yeah, right. that guy. <laughs> but it was a good example. I mean, first of all, I needed someone to write about, you know, post-prostate. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that's interesting what you're saying, right? So the... The temporality in the second in the second chapter is different than the temporality of the first, and neither of them are 
classic castration temporality in which you have it and you lose it. And then it's just sad, sad, sad. <laughs> sad, right. sad, yeah. Right. But the, the temporality in the second story, as you're saying, it's, it's, it's neither, it's, I'm, it, it's not the happy ending. It's not like everything is just wonderful. It's, it's kind of the complicated texture of uh, sort of a lived sexual relation with somebody else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and aging. I mean, you know, so it is absolutely true that aging isn't castration in the classic sense, which is that you don't go and you're just like pathetic and you never feel sexy and you never have sex and you never want sex and you don't care what you look like. That's not true. But it's also not true that aging doesn't make any difference. Mm-hmm. Right. right. And that, you know, and I mean, that because that's what's being sold to us by an enormous you can't even say one industry, it's many industries. It's the cosmetic industry. It's the medical industry. Everybody is trying to sell us the idea that we don't have to age, that we can stay sexy and vital for our entire life like we were when we were in our 20s or if not our 20s, our 40s. Right. No, and, and if you don't, it's your fault. If you, you don't, failed. it's your fault, right? That you failed, that you that aging is a failure. Mm-hmm. Aging is, aging is, well, or is, is, a pathology. It's something yeah, that has to be fixed, right? That it's not the norm to age. It's it's a sign that it, aging is a disability in that, you know. Um, and so I'm trying to give us a way of thinking aging that is neither those two alternatives, which are the two alternatives that we basically have culturally, which is that we either get castrated or we resist it with Viagra and uh, Botox and, you know, and all of those things. So that we, you know, it tends to be on the on the side of, 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 you know, gendered feminine that we try to still look like we're young. And on the, you know, and on the side of gendered masculine, we try to still function like we're young, and, which is why, you know, sort of Botox and Viagra are really good, you know, gendered, gendered examples. But basically what it all shares is the idea that that. Aging means castration unless you can manage to to buy these products, whether medical or cosmetic, that make you not age. And then you can still be sexy and sexual and attractive and have a sex life. And I think that what I was trying, I mean, prostate surgery is something that happens to a lot of older men. It's, um, in fact, the numbers are incredible. Like by the time they're in your seventies or eighties, the vast majority of men actually have prostate cancer. A lot of times they're so old, they don't bother to operate because they're going to die of something else. And it's slow. Yeah. Cancer slows down when you get old. But, um, so it's, 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 it's a good, it's a good figure for talking about aging male sexuality mm-hmm. and its relation to castration. I mean, this actually happened to the man I live with, but it, but and it and it happened to him, you know, on the run up to my writing this book. So I'm I'm lucky in that way. Yeah. <laughs> good good timing. See, Alto, and great choice. Yeah. He's a great <laughs> husband. Perfect timing for prostate cancer. But I mean, yeah. what? A- <laughs> but it, it really did allow, I, I think, me to think about and explore some of these the issues about aging and sexuality and aging and male sexuality in a way that you know I wouldn't have. Hmm. Well, the uh, learning, as I did with this book, that um, ejaculation isn't possible without a prostate. I didn't know it either. I'm so glad. <laughs> no idea. Do now, though. It's interesting. 
But uh, I was thinking about how much, you know, our, the, the narrative of sexual intercourse, foreplay, play, right. which is penetration, male ejaculation, the story's over. And when male ejaculation is taken out of that, out of that narrative, then I don't even know when, how, how do we know sex is done then? What are, how do we even know if we're having sex, right? So right. There, there's so much more there than that's involved in thinking about um, like losing gender identity, losing sexual identity and losing, you know, and feeling, I'm, I can only imagine this is a very vulnerable time. Um, yeah. Yeah. And trying to reconsider, but then there is a phallic surprise, a bit of a phallic surprise there as well, right? <laughs> right. I love phallic surprise. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and 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 I mean, so I spent time in that chapter, ended up talking about not just the temporality of sexuality over a life course, but the temporality of sexuality. There's a lot of temporal issues about sexuality and our uh, our kind of ideological notion of sexuality is the one you just gave us, which has a beginning and a middle and end and is, is absolutely, you know, it's about reproduction and it's about production. And it's, I mean, really thinking a lot about, first of all, how central still in 2021 or what, 2017 when I was probably writing this or 18, the idea is reproduction to our idea of sexuality, even though most of us think we've gotten beyond that. And that, that, that the effect of that is not only to define one sex act as the sex act, because it's the only one that, that produces babies or can result in babies, but also then defines who, who is and isn't sexual. So postmenopausal women, post-prostate men can't really be sexual because we know they can't reproduce. Mm-hmm. Right. right. But also, you know, thinking about the place of ejaculation and the place of the, of the um, teleological temporality of sexual activity, which is completely still linked to the idea of sex as reproductive, even for, for most of us who do not engage in sex thinking it should be reproductive. Certainly not most of the time. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And and so also, among other things, the idea that older people aren't sexual is still very much tied to the dominance of reproduction over our ideas of Mm -hmm. sexuality. And so if you're too old to be having children, why are you having sex? Well, right. And it's gross, right? Old people's sex is gross because it's it's perversion then. It's it's worse. Like there's such a prudery in particularly American sexuality. Yeah. Yeah. That non-reproductive sex is is almost always alighted with perversion. Um, yes, well, which it was classically back in the end of the nineteenth century. Yeah, so, absolutely, yeah. until yeah, um, eh, a strange temporality indeed. Um, I really loved this book. <laughs> I mean, oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I almost always say that because I almost always do. Um, I only, you know, I only read things I want to read, and I only interview people I think I will really want to talk to. Um, but uh, I got to tell you, when I was reading through the introduction, and I came to the bit about like when you were talking about the phallus, I was like, oh, good lord, what have I, what have I done? Um, but <laughs> then it all, it was all okay. <laughs> it was definitely well, worth. And I worry that there will be people who just stop reading that, and that's the end. So. <laughs> Don't do that, listeners. <laughs> Push through. Um, but I, I love, I love it, and it feels like, God, do I even want to say this? But like this very, it feels like a, it's such a personal book, right? And it feels it's so, um, 
thank you for sharing that, like with not just the theoretical insight, but some very personal parts of your life. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is personal. And, and you know, it's, there's this new category of thing called auto theory, which this book certainly belongs in the category of, and which I've only actually learned about. I didn't, I didn't hear this word until after I'd finished the book. So I didn't even know that was the name of it. I called it anecdotal theory, which is the name I'd given to it, to this, you know, um, 20 years earlier. But I have been, you know, experimenting for um, since the 1990s, so whatever that is, 20, 30 years, with trying to ground my theorizing in my lived experience. Mm-hmm. Um, at, because it's kind of where these things connect and come to. And this book was so much, I would have, had I not had these experiences, I would have never written this book. It's yeah. just so clear to me. But also, the book is my attempt to use those experiences to understand things better. And so I, I need to convey those to people. And it is true that I, I feel I feel a little nervous and uncomfortable and sometimes embarrassed talking about the content of the stories, not about the content of the ideas, but mm-hmm. the content of the stories. Um, when I have read parts of the book, I never read from the narratives because standing in front of people in person reading that is different than just putting it in a book. Sure. Um, it feels like exposure. It is exposure. Um, but, uh, but it also seems, I feel like the argument, some of the arguments I make in the book, not all of them, but some of the arguments I make in the book, the, the evidence for them is in these stories, in these things that happened to me that I'm trying to tell and that I couldn't make an argument for them without those. Like, I feel like they're necessary to the theory rather than just, you know, you know, and why should theory be any different than anything else, right? Any the postmodern condition, we understand that the the author is there, we understand that the theorist is there. Be open about it. Include your stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this has been between covers for a couple of years. What's going on now? So I'm I haven't really gotten beyond this book, <laughs> interestingly enough. Um, so like I'm actually writing um i'm currently writing a paper that i'm going to deliver that kind of connects stuff i'm thinking in this book to some other things um as a way of making the argument more better in in ways so i'm uh i'm actually reading what some of the things i say about late onset disability uh in relation to um some stuff in eve sedgwick's epistemology of the closet about the difference between minority and universalizing discourse, because it's those are the, like, is disability something that happens to a small segment of the people who we want to treat well because we want to treat minorities well, or is it something that happens potentially to everyone? And it's it seems to work the same as Cedric's notion of how it works for homosexuality, like, which is both a minority and a universalizing thing. So I'm reading in relation to that because I didn't think about that while I was writing the mm-hmm. book. And also then in relation to um, uh, Leonard Davis's book, Enforcing Normalcy, mm-hmm. in which he talks, he uses deafness and deaf culture as the model for disability. But on some occasions he talks about what he calls late deafened adults and how they just don't fit the model. They're always a problem because of course they don't know sign language. They get, 
Right. But late deaf and adult is, of course, a huge category of those people who are deaf in the world. Sure. Uh, so so I, I kind of like, so in some way, I'm still trying to make the argument I'm trying to make in this book, but connect it to uh, these two books that are very important, one in disability studies and one in queer theory and, and do that. So, so I guess I feel like, um, yeah, I'm still, I'm still kind of in the headspace of this book as opposed to in a new project. And so it's kind of a way of writing something that is still in the book, but also makes other connections. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm giving this, I'm writing this for, um, conference i'm going to in louvain mm. i'm going to, uh, this is a conference that was supposed to happen in april 2020 but because of the pandemic it got postponed so so there's a conference on uh differing body minds in louvain in the last week of october um so i'm actually that's what i'm writing this paper for so i'm mm. going to be really not so far away from where you are. <laughs> no, that's uh, yeah. And how what a convenient time that would be. <laughs> like, yeah. nice. That would be lovely. <laughs> what a lovely time to go to Louvain. Yeah. So, so that hopefully, might be- hopefully the the we, we will actually be able to get together and do this. Um, but uh, and you know, in so in some way, this book means so much to me mm-hmm. it, because of the way that it so is so connected to my life. And also brings together so much of the thinking I've done over the last 40, 50 years that I'm not ready to move beyond it. So I'm kind of in it still, but writing a little paper. Good. You, you, there's more to be done. You shouldn't be done with this. You should not. Yeah, I don't you, want to go on to some new topic. I feel like this is, I also feel like this is, this feels to me like in some way the most important thing I've ever figured out in my life. And it's so it's not like, oh, so I'll go work on this other thing. Right. Um, And it brings together it kind of brings together and validates a lot of the different fields of knowledge that I've learned over these years. And it Mm -hmm. makes them incredibly useful. So so I'm still in this book, which is why I'm happy you want to talk about it, even though it's 2021. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I, I'm glad you wanted to talk to me too, because you know it would have been okay. I would have understood if you'd been like, "Yeah, I'm done. I'm not talking to you about that." But I'm really glad you did. I have taken up enough of your time on this lovely day, uh, and so uh, I'm just going to say thank you, and I will uh, we'll, we'll talk again. I hope. Okay. Thank you. This has been very fun. <laughs> Wonderful. 